It's good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving. I want to begin by wishing you that. And today I am very, very thankful. I'm thankful to my God in heaven who has given me life. I am thankful for my family, my beautiful wife and daughter and two nieces that ran us wild last night. I'm thankful for each of you today, and I hope that your mind turns upward this week. I hope that you begin to count your many blessings, Uh, and I guarantee it you will find that list to grow as you begin to think about how good God is to each of us. One of the things when thinking about Thanksgiving, because I want to preach on the subject of Thanksgiving in some way this morning, because I want to be in the spirit of the season. But when you think about Thanksgiving, there is a religious sensibility to it. Because when you start to think about who you're thankful to, there's a religious aspect. And when you examine the words of Abraham Lincoln when he made the, the Thanksgiving proclamation, you will find all kinds of words that have to do with God. Because Thanksgiving, when you boil it down, when you take off the layers to it, it is a religious sensibility. Because eventually you have to keep thanking people until you get to God. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Whatever I am, whatever breath I have in my lungs, whatever I have in this world, it is because of God. There's something religious about being thankful. Chesterton said it like this. Listen, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Because there is this conspicuous absence in the life of the atheist. They're looking around trying to find someone to thank. And there's no one there for the atheist. But yet there is this yearning. There is this sensibility. There is this desire to do what? To say thank you to someone. And so today I want to talk about an outgrowth of thanksgiving. Because what is the expression of thanksgiving? And let me tell you what it is. It's worship. It's worship. That when you begin to think of what God has done for you, the expression that should take place in your life is worship to God and gratitude for what He's done. But when I begin to think about worship, sometimes I think of myself and then I think to myself, I'm too worldly. Yes, your preacher is too worldly sometimes. Sometimes I'm too naturally minded to worship. Sometimes I'm unfocused. I'm distracted. And I don't feel like worshiping God. And I strive to make the experience of worship genuine, real, authentic in my life. And then sometimes I come up short. I'm not being real with God in my life. And and that's a foolish thing because 
There is no such thing as faking God out. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows who you are. He knows what you're thinking about. And we have kind of worldly concerns, worldly thoughts that invade worship. Don't we? My stomach's growling. I know there's going to be some good turkey. I've got bills to pay. I've got all these things entering my mind and taking the place of what should be there, which is God. And there are these things that are invading us in our worship time, in this sacred moment and place, right? I'm reminded of a story of a preacher who was preaching. And this is just an example of how the world likes to invade worship. And he's preaching on temperance. And he's concluding his sermon. He's getting to the end of it. And he's getting more fired up about the the idea of temperance. And he says, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd go and throw it in the river. And then he says with a little more enthusiasm, if I had all the wine in the world, I'd go and throw it into the river. Then he says even louder, he said, if I had all the whiskey in the world, you got it, I'd go and throw it into the river. He concluded his lesson and the song leader got up and he says, 365, shall we gather at the river? (laughs) We've got these worldly things that invade the space of worship. And right when we think that we've found God in worship, earthly thoughts come into our minds and in our hearts, don't they? I want to give you a picture of what the throne room of God looks like and what they're doing in the throne room right now. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne of the The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I want you to think about that scene. That right now, in the throne room of God, a hundred million angels are singing to God. Can you imagine the power of being in the presence of that? An innumerable host of angels and elders and people singing the praises of God. Wouldn't you like to hear that? Wouldn't you like to be a part? Wouldn't you like to see a hundred million angels singing to God? That's something. You see, worship is the annexing of earth to heaven. Worship is the moment we begin to get a glimpse into heaven. And when we sing, we're not just singing to ourselves, but we're joining in a chorus of a hundred million angels. 
We are beginning to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a privilege. Then I think, where are my thoughts? Where is my heart? A.W. Tozer said it like this. Listen. I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Boy, that gets me. Because sometimes I get bored with myself. I get bored with worship. I get bored. But worship is something that if you want something out of it, you've got to put something into it. You have to put yourself into it. I have to put myself into worship. And worship is so imperative. It's so important. It's so vital. And we must enter it with reverence. Listen to what the... The writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 5, 1 and 2, he says, walk prudently or be careful when you walk to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they do is evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth Therefore, let your words be few. When the writer of Ecclesiastes considers worship, he says, be careful. Be reverent. Don't go in there just saying anything. But let your words be few, he says. Let not your heart utter anything hastily because you are in the presence of God. Isn't that serious? So today we look at John chapter 4, 23 and 24, concerning what worship is. And, and Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim had a temple there that was destroyed, but it was their temple, the Samaritan's temple. And so the woman is concerned about where worship is going to happen with the Messiah. And she talks about Jerusalem having the temple. And she talks about the mountain of Gerizim where they used to have their temple. And she says, where are we going to worship? But Jesus is not concerned with the locality of worship. He's concerned with different things. And the first thing that he is concerned with is, number one, true worshipers. Not a place, but a people. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit and in the truth. You see, true worship can't be separated from the worshiper. It's about the worshiper, first of all. What is worship? The literal meaning of it is to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence, to adore, to do abeyance, to prostrate oneself, and to kiss the hand towards. Worship is how we approach God. It's how we focus. It's how we meditate. It's how we center ourselves on the person of God. 
And there's many facets to it. A man by the name of William Temple said it like this, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to evoke the will to the purpose of God. What worship is, is me taking my little perspective. My little perspective. Everybody's got a perspective here, right? And that I'm going to exchange my little lowly perspective for a transcendent God's perspective. That I am trading in my perspective to the transcendence of God in our very being. And here's the idea I want to get across to you about worship is, is that when we approach God in worship, that we're getting to the closest to the essence of reality that there is. Because everything that you see will be changed. Everything that you know will be changed. But there's one unchanging person. There's only one person who is real. And that's God. So when we worship God, we are encountering the most real thing that you will all week. More real than a TV show. More real than a football game. More real than the bills in your mailbox. When we encounter God, we are encountering the very essence of being a personal God. It's natural to, to worship. In fact, it's inarguable that people worship. Yes, some people don't come to church and worship, but people are worshiping everywhere in this world. They are. Every person has this sensibility. Everyone has this yearning to worship something. Some fall to idols. Some fall to pleasure. Some fall to knowledge. Some to pride. Some to riches. Some to fame. Some to science. But somewhere, everywhere, people are worshiping something. And God is seeking true worshipers. People who understand that those things are inferior to the true living God. He wants you to become a true worshiper of Him. And in worship we begin to understand Him. It says that for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. It gives us the nature of worship gives two aspects to how worship works. The first one being the Spirit. And this has to do with what's inside of you, the internal part of worship. It has to do with your conscience. It has to do with your heart. It has to do with your mind, your soul. It has to do with what people can't see. But it has to be in tune with who God is. And when we come to worship, that spirit should first of all be in awe and wonder of who God is. Because God is so much greater than you can begin to think about. And there's times in our life when we see the beauty of the earth. When we see the beauty of creation. And we sit in awe of it, don't we? 
The psalmist says, They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Haven't you ever seen something? A waterfall or a rainbow or a mountain peak or the Grand Canyon or a new child being born and said, I am in awe. You see, that's just a hint of who God is. A part of our worship should see God for how big He is, how powerful He is. He is the living, true God. And when we have this awe and reverence, it makes God bigger. And guess what? It brings me into my rightful place of humility. No one should walk out of church feeling bigger than God. Ezekiel, when he encountered and had a vision of the likeness of God, it says that when he saw it, he fell down on his face. Think about that. If you were to see God in His throne room, you would look at it for one second and you would immediately be on your face before God. That's how amazing He is. And that should bring a profound sense of humility to each of us. Also, when we encounter God in worship, it should also make us very aware of our sinfulness. Remember the psalmist of old, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, that when we pray to God, when we worship God, we should see our own moral failings and repent of those things but also in spirit means I need to be grateful. I need to be thankful. The psalmist in chapter 35, 18 says, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among many people. The spirit. And it also means that a part of our worship is communing with the Holy Spirit Himself. That the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. So the first aspect is that internal spiritual aspect of worship, which is of the Spirit, which is my attitude, it's my conscience, it's my heart, it's my thoughts. But then the other part is, they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's another side to the story, because God has specified how He wants His people to worship. And the Bible warns us that there is vain worship. There is empty worship. And sometimes that emptiness can come because of our hearts, because we bring everything to worship except our very being, except our hearts, and except our life. We come to church. We bring our good clothes, but we leave everything else behind. But also vain worship is when we accept men's word over God's word. Matthew 15, verse number 9, For in vain do they worship me, Teaching the commandments as the doctrines of men. So if we are going to exchange our humanly perspective, which is what worship is for God's purposes, we must order our worship according to His Word. To honor God is to honor His Word. To obey God is to obey His Word. You cannot separate God's Word from Himself. This is the way that God has revealed Himself. So we turn to the Scriptures. 
the truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse number 17. We turn to the word, the scriptures for what we do in worship. And the Bible gives us a simple formula. It says that we're to join together and sing. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That we are to pray to God. Acts chapter 4.31, the church assembled together and it says, and when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. There's also the Lord's Supper that proclaims the Lord's death till He comes again. And what's interesting about Christian worship is it's a little different than Old Testament worship, isn't it? Because what was at the center of Old Testament worship? An altar. An altar where an offering would be brought. And you see, in Christian worship, the offering has already been brought to us. The offering of Christ has already been given for you and I. And so the Lord's Supper is simply remembering that altar that Christ died upon. There's also the preaching of God's Word. There's the collection in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 that on the Lord's Day to gather a collection. And where do we begin to have this acceptable true worship? It comes from God Himself. It comes from the very nature of God. That's why Jesus says, God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. When we begin to think about how good God is, it should inspire worship. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Not only is He good, but He's also sovereign. He is in control. He is deserving of our worship. And when we begin to put God in the place that He's supposed to be in our life, when we put Him at the top of our life, when we seek first the kingdom of God and we put God first, then all of the other things fall naturally into their place and where they're supposed to be. And they benefit as a result of God being first in our life. Worship is the way that we commune with God. True worship is to encounter the very essence of reality. The true essence of what love is. The true essence of what goodness is. The true essence of what being is. The very person of God. It is through worship that we communicate to God. We are communicating to God and He is communicating to us. That's why Ecclesiastes says, go to the temple to hear, to listen. And that's why it's so important to put God's Word at the center of worship. And also, it is through worship that we establish God's community. He has called us to live together as a people, not just as a person. Not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves as the manner of such, but rather exhorting one another until that day comes. But not only do we worship God in this place and in this time, 
But Romans chapter 12 says that our life is to take on worship. I beseech you, Paul says, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And the words that Paul uses in the technical Greek is what a priest would do in offering an offering to the Lord. That we offer our very life to God. And it says that it's our reasonable duty. After the Samaritan woman came to Jesus and spoke to him about worship, Jesus revealed something very important to her. That he was the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. And I hope today that the worship will reveal that to you. Of who Jesus really is. And who you really are. Seek God in worship today. Seek Him in worship in the church. Seek Him in worship in your life. Seek Him in worship. He is so deserving of our love and adoration. This morning, if you're not a Christian and you're thankful, you're thankful for what God has done for you, let that take root in your life and give yourself over to God. Give your life to God. It's already His. We're just under the illusion that it's ours. He grants us the gift of free will. He grants us the gift of choice. He grants us the gift of love. And He asks us to choose Him in worship. The Bible says to believe in Jesus, to repent of sins, to confess Jesus, to be baptized, immersed into His body, the church. If you haven't done that, we want you to do that today. Or maybe you are a Christian and you feel weakened by what the world throws at us. That invading idea. Or maybe you just need prayers of encouragement or healing. We want to encourage you, whatever your need is, and we are thankful for you. If you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.